You are now listening to Misty Radio on WMBR Cambridge 88.1 FM, a show that connects MIT to the world. I'm your host, Sanaya Sampson-Hill, and on this episode, we will be exploring public health and digital transparency. The MIT India team recently caught up with MIT alum Uma Girkar, who founded the Smart Learning, Eating, Exercising, and Thinking program, also known as Sleep Program. It is a public health and education program which Uma and other MISTI participants have conducted in various countries globally. In this interview, Uma speaks with MIT student Enrico Granado Chavez and exchanges stories about the Sleep Program they conducted during their MISTI experiences. So SLEET is a public health and education program. Uh, over the years, it has been piloted. We have led pilot programs in four different countries, uh, US, India, Chile, and Peru. I have been leading SLEET sessions in the US and India, and we had another MISTI alum, uh, Cesar Cruz, uh, lead pilot sessions in uh, Peru on environmental health and Enrico that we who we have over here is another Misty alum who has led a pilot session in Chile. Um, so I'd like to start off with um, Enrico. Uh, we're really excited to have you here. Um, if you could give a little bit more information about who you are, your MIT year, your major, your Misty year, and what you're currently doing, that'd be great. So um, I did Misty back in 2018, uh, where I went to uh, Chile. Right now, I'm a class of 2021, and I'm minoring in physics and majoring in computer science. Great. And so what led you to actually do Misty Chile in the first place? Um, I guess since, since growing up, I had like a really big interest in the country. I'm originally from Mexico, and, um, but there was a bunch of um, Chilean shows that I used to watch when I lived there. And so it was somewhere that I was very interested in. And once I got the opportunity in my life to do it, um, I decided to go ahead and go for it. Got it. Great. Um, so I'd like to introduce myself now formally. I'm Uma. I graduated from MIT undergrad in 2017 and then did a one-year master's also at MIT. Graduated from that in 2018. Um, I studied computer science and engineering. And I did three MISTs. Um, two in 2014 and one in 2018. Um, two Missy Indias and one Missy Switzerland. Um, and, and I was motivated to do Missy because, well, I started off with Missy India because I am from India and I was interested in uh, contributing to the country's growth on more of a professional level. And I chose to do Missy Switzerland because it was a unique opportunity to work in a public, in a large public health organization. Um, so coming back to you, Enrico, uh, could you give a brief introduction of your MISTI internship that you did in Chile, your official role, um, more about the company? Yeah, so I actually did a MISTI research experience in, in a university called Universidad de Santiago de Chile. And there I was, at the time, I was really interested in physics research. And so I, went ahead and contacted a researcher in the university and asked if I could help. And I did for the summer and I had a great experience there. Great, great. And why did you choose in particular to do a comp like a research experience? How did you choose that role? Um, so I was going around and, and trying to figure out what I was interested in. And, and through searching through the web, I just found out that a specific um, research opportunity and this university was something that I was very interested in. I was in fluid physics, and I and, so, and, uh, and then once I once I contacted them, I had a call with them, and and they seemed like some people that I would like to work with, and that's how I chose them. Great, excellent. Um, so I ended up with Missy India again because. I am originally from India and I was seeking to, I started off with working more in a professional company, um, working on instrumentation and business development. And then I transitioned to sleep because I wanted to focus more on a community focused program. 
Um, so coming back to you again, Enrico, where did you conduct SLEET and what did you teach? Yeah, so I conducted SLEET for the students in the University of Santiago de Chile, and I taught physics. Great. And can you describe a little bit about how Chile is, the atmosphere of the country, just to yeah. give everyone an introduction? I guess during the time, there was a lot of um, political situations happening. So um, the actual school wasn't on session, but there was still students who were really willing to learn. And so I took the opportunity to, to give my resources and my time to be able to help those students that are trying to catch up on their classes, even though classes weren't exactly happening at the moment. And I gave a session on a class that, and a topic that students were struggling, especially new college students. Oh, that's wonderful. That's great. Um, and could you talk a little bit more about the subject matter? Because I know you taught physics, but like what, like, were you just leading like a class session or? A... Yeah, it was basically um, a session where, so it, since it was like college freshman, it was like their first, um, like, kind of like hardish, um, science-y class that they usually struggle with. And it was a, I mean, to be specific, it was a physics, um, uh, like static physics, basically, you know, like uh, forces and tension and cables and all that. And yeah, so I, I taught that and I helped them out. Great, great. So um, touching it back on what I did, I worked, I've worked with uh, students in the US and India, and I have taught, uh, I've taught like health, the importance of good healthcare, exercise, nutrition, as well as more educational subjects like math and science. Um, I particularly chose those because to me, always education and healthcare went hand in hand. If, uh, if you weren't often, if you weren't leading a healthy lifestyle, if you weren't able to really, um, if you weren't really able to get proper nutrition, I've, I personally found it hard to focus in school and therefore I wanted others uh, to, in order to get the best education to also be able to lead a healthy lifestyle, which motivated uh, the topics that I chose. Um, and I chose math and science in particular because I thought that was fundamental to a lot of the leader. I was, I was an engineering major at MIT and um, in seeking to focus on that, I felt that math and science were, from a young age, they were really fundamental building blocks um, and seeking to have more other students uh, pursue engineering and science majors. Um, I thought that math and science were the base of it all. What, what can you describe a little bit about like the, yeah, I know you said like college freshmen, but more of like the social dynamic of the students you were working with and also like the education system of the country, like if you could give just like a brief outline of how the how Chile's education system works. Yeah, so I guess during the summer there, it's whenever college students are kind of in the middle of their classes because it's on the Southern hemisphere and just um, the whole sessions are like backwards from what Northern hemisphere is used to. So the college students there already kind of knew each other and they already even though classes weren't on many of the college students still came to college just so they could like hang out with their friends and so they could really um you know talk to each other and stuff and, and still find opportunities if there's any so i felt like the college students were very uh, comfortable with each other when whenever i did the session and yeah so Specifically, like like I said, like the college students that I usually help were college students that were actually struggling with the with the topic, and so they decided to, like, come out of their own time, to to try to learn these topics, even though it wasn't required by their school or anything. Going back to that, I mean, working in India and stuff, I felt like there was a heavy competition culture uh, there, where you know students are almost entirely uh, ranked by the score that they receive on an exam versus in the US, I found the system to be more the education system to be more of collaboration, uh, doing out of school projects, and not very rank focused and more holistic. How is the education system in Chile? Is that very competition or uh, collaboration focused? Um, I'd actually say it's from, from what I saw, it, since I was already doing teaching college students, I felt like it was very collaboration focused. Um, mostly because everyone was uh, in the same situation in which um, like school wasn't going on and they all just were trying to like make sure that 
they stayed on top of their classes, even though it wasn't possible at the moment because of the political situation there. Um, and so how do you feel the students responded to your teaching? So whenever I taught, I felt like I did well. And so even after the class, like I still had like some students come in and ask me for clarification questions and some of the stuff that I taught. So they seem very engaged in the topics. Um, if, if ever there was a question, um, they were comfortable to, to ask it. I felt that when I, you know, I started teaching uh, students, uh, there were some sessions where all the students were super ready to engage and really interested in what I was teaching. And then there were other students who on a Friday afternoon, they'd rather go out and play instead of being in my uh, fleet session. So I, I had some trouble actually engaging the students initially, but what I found helped was making the program very activity-based and uh, turning it sort of into a game. I found that that engaged students a lot more. Um, were there any challenges? You've, I know Enrico, you said that, like, I mean, the students seemed very excited and you thought you did well, but did you face any challenges at all in uh, engaging the students? I don't think so, because mostly whenever the, the students would come there because they had the time and they knew that they really wanted to do well in this topic. So they came motivated. They were there because they wanted to, to get ahead or just catch up on their, on the topic. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, so yeah, so regarding some of the challenges I faced, I thought that I thought that what I could have done, I guess, to better engage the students was um, for for each session, which I learned later, uh, is I one I should take location into account. Um, students in India versus students in the U.S. Uh, you know, I needed to the teaching approach was I guess very different for me, uh, and I think the other thing is taking the students' personal background into consideration instead of using like a one size fits all approach. Go, um, I know you said like there was a lot of political pressure and stuff. Um, do you think that really affected the students um, or did, do you think that really affected you in your teaching method? I think it, I think it really did affect the whole. So during the, my whole time there, in, um, the students like were kind of already used to not being in class because once I arrived to Chile, it was like the whole political situation of classes not being on right now was was already active for a few months. Um, I, I don't think it really changed the dynamic too much because it was really like they wanted to be there. Um, yeah, in my case, I mean, I'd partnered with an NGO and that NGO particularly uh, targets the leaders of communities. And those were the students I was kind of teaching. So um, it's really important to shape leaders in the positive direction because uh, leaders can lead great things or leaders can lead wrong things. And so um, I... What I personally felt was that uh, having the leaders lead like, you know, healthy lifestyle changes and the importance of education would really not only change the lifestyle of the students that I was teaching, but also propagate it to other students in their community. Um, and I guess that that was what um, I think I made it a point to engage on um, as time went on. And so looking into the future, um, like taking sleep further, um, what do you think, uh, how do you think teaching students could be modified long-term, Enrico, to have a, a better impact in like the long run? So I guess from what, from the input that I gathered was that, um, that to be, to be able to make sure that the students know that you're there not just because uh, of many other reasons, just because you want to be there and you want to help them. And so when when it was my specific situation in which they wanted to be there because they wanted help, I think just just uh, being there and being available, uh, not just in one session, but in the future for if they have any questions, give them any resources if they want to contact you. Um, just build basically building like more of a community and less of a and less of a like just like lecture and then happens more like a community with the people that you're with. I think, I think that is, that can go a long ways and that can help with the long term. Yeah, I definitely agree that um, 
the entire point of SLEET is to basically have form a supportive community uh, for students to learn together and go form. So I'm really glad that you touched the community aspect. And then um, in terms of what I feel like Misty could do further is, I know in 2018 in the year, um, some uh, Misty, some Misty program managers, I guess, would give students extra money or like a small scholar, like small fund basically for leading seat sessions. Cause you know, it would often, it, it involves transportation costs. And perhaps uh, if they're going somewhere on the weekend, it, weekend to teach it uh, requires uh, lodging costs as well. So I think um, some Misty program managers were thinking of creating like a small, um, small uh, fund for such students. So I think that is one way that Misty could continue helping out. Um, and for your personal future plans, do you have any global experiences that you're interested in moving forward? Um, have you done any Misty's since you did Misty Chile? Yeah, I mean, I did um, GTL, um, the, which is uh, Global Teaching Labs. Um, and I, I was at, um, which is a Misty experience as well. Um, a few months after doing the Misty in Chile, I did it in, in Brazil. And I also was able to help students. So, so yeah, that was my experiences. Uh, right now, I don't have many plans uh, in the near future for for Misty, mostly because everything is very uncertain. But I always would love to help out communities and and countries that are in need. Yeah, and uh, in terms of my in terms of my plans, um, I would love to continue implementing fleet in uh, other countries around the world and leading pilot sessions. I think in some places it works better than others, and I'd like to get a better understanding of where it, it works well. Um, I'm hoping that ultimately SLEET, as Enrico touched on, provides a community structure and kind of gets the competition mindset out of uh, uh, students' heads. And uh, that's in the long run, I hope to visit many more countries. I don't have a particular one, but uh, anywhere, South America, Asia. Uh, I know Missy has started new programs in the Middle East and North Africa. Um, so I think those are all fair game. What a great example of how our students find additional ways to engage in the communities in which they live during their MISTI experiences. I think many of us can empathize with wonderlust expressed by Uma at the end. Oh, my God. 
You just heard the song Tiger is Coming by Korean band Linauchi. Denmark is among the most digital countries in the EU, according to the Digital Economy and Society Index by the European Commission. But at a time when the threat from misuse of data is real and new concerns about data ethics are emerging, are Danes being too naive? Or could their high standards on digital transparency and responsibility lead the way to a more harmonized digital future. Political science professor and MIT Denmark faculty director Kathleen Thielen moderated this conversation with Soren Yule Jorgensen, a mentor for Danish tech startups, and 2021.ai chief technology officer Rasmus Hausch. 2021.ai provides AI technology to companies at scale, providing comprehensive solutions. Jorgensen is the former CEO at the Innovation Center Denmark in Silicon Valley, which aids Denmark startups in research and investments. There is also a center in Boston, which facilitates Danish companies establishing themselves in the city. Jorgensen is additionally a research fellow at the Center for Human Rights and International Justice at Stanford University. He founded Forest Avenue, a tech consulting firm. Daniel Jurgensen is a fellow uh, at the Center for Human Rights and International Justice at Stanford University. His work focuses on technology, ethics, and the law, uh, and on business uh, and human rights. He is the founder of the strategy firm Forest Avenue, which has offices in Brussels, Copenhagen, uh, and Silicon Valley. Uh, he's also co-founder of Sustainery, which supports uh, innovation uh, in the context of the UN's uh, Sustainable Development uh, Goals. Surin previously worked as CEO uh, for the Danish Innovation Center in Palo Alto uh, and as Consul General uh, of Denmark to California, uh, focusing on techno technological innovation uh, and tech-related engagement uh, to support startups, corporate innovation, and research collaboration uh, between Denmark uh, and the United States. Surin worked as a diplomat for the Danish Foreign Service uh, and for international tech companies such as Maersk Data and IBM. He taught, at, uh, he taught law uh, at the University of Copenhagen and has worked as a spokesperson 
uh, for the Danish government, um, also as a European Union negotiator and a lawyer representing Denmark uh, at the European Union Court in Luxembourg. Uh, CERN is also uh, a mentor and ad an advisor for various startup firms. So as you can hear, he is a really busy guy uh, and we are absolutely delighted and really lucky to have him today. So CERN. Thank you very much for that, uh, for that kind introduction. Uh, and I'm um, really very happy to, uh, to, uh, to be here and, and, and uh, to take part in this uh, important discussion. I really, I really just have four points to make. Uh, one, that there is a, a high social trust in, in the Nordic countries and, and, and why uh, that is the case and what we can sort of uh, take away from that. Uh, how that impacts the way businesses run in, in, uh, in the Nordics and, and, and what the takeaways are in relation to that. The, the level of the digital development in, in the Nordic countries and how that uh, relates to, to, to trust. And then uh, a few comments on, on what, what the takeaways might be and, and, and whether this is uh, relevant uh, globally. And uh, as a spoiler alert uh, to, that, uh, to that question is, I think, uh, I think there are takeaways and I think it is relevant, uh, relevant uh, globally. I think some of the main uh, areas of uh, importance is the collaborative approach, the, the strong focus on, on, uh, on transparency and the strong focus on, on education. So trust in the Nordics, uh, there are quite a few signals or, or indicators for, of this. One of them uh, is the sort of uh, consistent uh, position as least corrupt countries in, in, uh, in the world. And I'll sort of in, in this just talk to, to the Nordics as a, as a group because this is true for Denmark, but, but it's also true for Finland, Sweden and, and, uh, and, uh, and Norway. Uh, it's a general trend. So uh, there's a very low corruption, it's a corruption perception index, but, but there's a very low uh, uh, corruption in, in the Nordics in, in general. There's a very strong general level of trust. Uh, there's also just to make that point, a very uh, high level of, uh, or very low level of, of, uh, in, of, of uh, economic, uh, social inequality as, as, uh, as shown from the, from the Gini uh, index. Uh, there's a, there's, a, there's a number of, of, uh, of uh, indicators that we have uh, high economic, uh, high social uh, trust. We also know that, that, uh, that there are benefits from that. I mean, we have a lower uh, transaction cost in our, in, in our economy. Uh, we have higher happiness related to that. And, and there are a number of other uh, factors. I think the, the, the main uh, takeaways from, from this uh, uh, and, and, and the history uh, around this is, does it go, I mean, we, we even have research that, that, that shows that this started way back in, 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 in the Viking ages and they had to uh, perhaps trust each other when, when they uh, agreed to meet sort of off the western coast of Denmark to go to England uh, in the spring. And, and, and they sort of had to, to, to have that kind of, of trust. We even have research uh, indicating that, that, um, that the, so the low uh, hierarchy of, of the, the Protestantism was important. And, and we've seen that there's actually higher levels of social trust among Swedish immigrants in, in, in the US than in, in, in the rest of the, of the society. But I think what, what really drove the, the, the high level of trust was the, the, uh, the development of the industrial society uh, in, in, in the uh, mid, sort of around uh, 19, uh, uh, sorry, 1860 and, and, and forward, especially around, uh, around uh, 1900, uh, with the emergence of, um, of uh, strong associations, uh, a strong focus on, on learning and education, and, and uh, especially perhaps the, the emergence of, of strong trade unions coming out of this sort of uh, uh, culture of, of uh, association and the, and the very firm establishment uh, that uh, the labor markets uh, and with that a number of issues around society are, uh, are actually managed in, in, managed in, in a tripartite negotiations involving sort of the, the employees, the employers and, and society uh, and, and that there's a, a free negotiation right but, but we, we sort of founded that kind of, of collaborative model which has, has permeated into uh, society in, in, uh, in general. And, and uh, so these values uh, 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 run through in, in, uh, in, uh, in business uh, as well, founded on, on a quite sort of ethical approach to, uh, to business, uh, a collaborative approach, low uh, power hierarchy, uh, and um, I, I write on the screen a symbiotic, that's, that may be taking it too far, uh, that, 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 that sort of the relation between the industry is, is directly uh, symbiotic. But there's a, an early realization on, 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 on the side of industry in, in this sort of collaborative uh, system that, that uh, you have to take into account a number of, sort of social aspects 
sustainable aspects and so forth, uh, that, that agenda is generally old with, with, with the, with the uh, 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 business in, in, the, in the Nordics. And, and, and uh, so many of the same sort of values and, and, and approaches uh, are seen also in, in the way business is, uh, is uh, run. Uh, and again, a strong focus on education, uh, allowing for flexibility in, in, the, in the labor market. So um, uh, moving on to, to the digital, just uh, stating uh, again uh, uh, statistics, the Nordics come out as the most digital countries uh, in, in the most, most digitized countries. Uh, uh, and, and there are many indicators for it. It's a general trend. Um, it, hasn't, it hasn't dropped from the sky. Uh, 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 again, it, it, it comes out of, of, uh, of, of a planned and, and, uh, and a diligent approach. And, and perhaps most notably, it comes out of that same sort of collaborative uh, approach where uh, the state has played a role in facilitating the development, making plans and strategies and so forth, uh, and, and, and uh, uh, done that in an open dialogue with both actually the, the, the industry, uh, configuration of the, the collaboration with the Confederation of Industry is, is a good example, but also with, with, the, with the trade unions and the employer side. And so uh, just to, to, to sum up, we are uh, generally uh, sort of moving into to a digital uh, area with, with, a, with a, of course, uh, as, as we all know, numerous challenges, uh, changing and, and, and challenging uh, many, sort of many of, of, of the ways that, that, we, uh, that we have our established ourselves in. It raises ethical issues, it raises uh, sort of social issues on, on future democracy, it, it, it raises issues relating to proof of work and, and how we manage and organize our, our companies. And just to, to, uh, to, to sum up, uh, uh, with, with the question whether sort of the, the, the Nordics have the, the answer to all that. I'm not sure the Nordics can, 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 can do all that. We are small countries, but, but I do think that there are some, some very important sort of takeaways from, from the way we've developed that trust and how we've sort of nurtured and, and, and managed it, how we've integrated into to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, uh, the way business is organizing. I think they, they go back to exactly uh, a number of ethical values permitting uh, the way sort of government is run and, and how business is run, uh, notably uh, transparency and fairness. Uh, this uh, collaborative approach uh, uh, and, and sort of involving, uh, and, and, and which, which happens at a social level, but also at, at an industry level in, in organizations. Uh, this sort of democratic approach of, 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 uh, of uh, discussing issues uh, that are emerging in a, in a collaboration, which is also relevant for the leader's role. And then, of course, uh, education uh, and the importance of, uh, of uh, education. Rasmus is the Chief Technology Officer at 2021 AI, which is an AI company uh, that specializes in the implementation of transparent uh, and trustworthy AI solutions and applications uh, for customers and clients uh, really across the world, um, Europe, Asia, the United States. Uh, Rasmus is also an active member of the committee that is developing and promoting international ISO standards uh, for ICT technology in the area of AI. Uh, he works with the European Union in developing guidelines and legislation on trustworthy AI uh, and is the lead partner uh, in an EU-funded project on the governance of disruptive te uh, technologies called ATAPAS. He has been working in the area of Trans, uh, information technology and data science for two decades now. He has a background uh, in engineering uh, and computer science that's going to resonate with um, many of you who are tuning in from, uh, from MIT, including my students. Um, he previously worked as an engineer uh, at IBM and has been working with and for global companies involved in a very wide range uh, of sectors, utilities, energy, telecoms, uh, healthcare, finance, transportation, and public services. He has an extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily broad background and really incredible uh, credentials. And we're also extremely fortunate uh, to have him with us today. So, Rasmus. Thank you very much, Kathleen. That was a, that was a fantastic intro there. So, so thank you very much for that. So, so let me uh, let me push on uh, the presentation work here. Um, so, so basically. Um, just a very small introduction to to the company. So uh, here at 2021 uh, AI, we we develop uh, models together with our partners. We have a technical platform, and we do governance uh, on 
developing uh, models and applications uh, for uh, that contains AI. So there's a lot of possibilities uh, around data in Denmark, um, and all of this data obviously makes a, a, a nice cocktail for 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 building uh, models and, and AI, uh, and 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 doing that across the globe. So um, I, I would say that. Uh, and I think I think this sort of picture uh, resonates also with the other Nordic countries as well. Both Sweden and Norway and, and Finland has these systems as well. Um, and um, and basically, what you can do then is you can start to build models on, on top of it, right? So the way you do that is typically that you ingest the data that you have. It might be some health-related data, uh, or, um, or or other 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 parts. Um, but in this case, I've used an example and just said this is this is data on houses and housing prices. So I ingest this data, I do some exploration, I maybe do some transformation of this data, and then I train some models and do some experiments with it. And then finally, I do some testing and make sure that the accuracy of this model is correctly or, or set up correctly. And then I, I put it into an operational mode uh, where it runs in a production environment, and then you can integrate it with the rest of the systems. And then typically, you on top of that, you also build uh, some lifecycle management that sort of um, at, a, at a regular interval ingests new data or pulls in new data to the system and then it retrains itself um, and, and, and then by, by doing that it actually learns from uh, the surrounding environment and the data and how the, the, the data around it changes over time. Now, uh, based on that, then uh, you know, as uh, as a, a guy with a purple sweater, I can then uh, you know request I can feed the input of my own house, and I can get out the price of my house uh, or predicted price of my house. That 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 um, uh, prediction might be used for applying for a loan or or some 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 uh, some similar things. And uh, you know, looking at this picture, then I think that well, all of this looks uh, looks right, right. Well, I mean, the problem there is, first of all, that as a, as a user of this system, uh, the only thing I get back is just the price of my house. And it's sort of a, uh, that there's no, there's no explanations to why uh, the price of this house is what it is. Um, and, 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 and that's actually some of the problems uh, surrounding this. And also, um, I, I, I'm not sure exactly what was the training data used for this. So, I mean, the problem is really that there's a lot of these models around and uh, just as one example here is the uh, COMPASS uh, model, which is actually a US-based uh, model. Uh, it stands for Correctional Offender Management Profiling for Alternative Sanctions and it's, uh, it's about uh, when, when people are, uh, you know, uh, on probation from, uh, from, 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 the, from the jail. Uh, then uh, there there is a model that assesses the risk of of them committing new crimes uh, when they are when they are taking um, out of the, um, of the of the jails and basically uh, you can say this model was introduced around 2013 and it is now in use in New York and Wisconsin California and other places. The problem with such a model is that there's actually no explanations to why the risk of these uh, individual profiles are the way they are. Um, the, the, the model itself is a black box model. There's no, uh, there's no uh, transparency in it. Um, and there's no explanations to the individual uh, people receiving these uh, uh, risk assessments. It's something that a judge would use when they are, when they are faced with these decisions. Um, so, uh, so at least there, there's a problem. Uh, <laughs> you can say, I've just collected a number of issues here from, from around the globe. Uh, another issue here is a, is a, this is a Finnish case where um, uh, which was about a, um, uh, a a person that were that that were rejected uh, to get a loan uh, on the basis that uh, he was living in the uh, south of Finland in the Swedish uh, in, a, in a small Swedish talking population. And it turned out that if he was in fact uh, not a man but a woman, and if he spoke uh, Swedish and not Finnish, he would have gotten a loan, and uh, and this bank actually got a uh, a, a fine of a hundred thousand uh, euros. So, uh, so so these cases actually do occur. On top of that, um, you can say that uh, these kinds of models are not only uh, uh, you know a problem when it comes to the decisions uh, that, that it makes, but also uh, in the explanations that it does not give. Uh, or the trans transparency that it does not have. Uh, a good example of that is when you when you Google uh, uh, global warming is, and then there's a, a number of suggestions for that. 
what what many people um, perhaps know, you know, in the back of their head, but 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 are not made aware of, is that uh, is that these search uh, criteria are, are actually personalized. They are they are shown because you live in a certain area, because you are a certain type of person, because you have a certain type of search uh, history, uh, and uh, and. Um, and the same goes for for the uh, algorithms when we uh, browse through our Facebook or uh, LinkedIn or Twitter feeds. Uh, these uh, the things that we see uh, they they are very much customized uh, to 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 fit your need. Uh, creating these echo chambers that that we know uh, and 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 have a feel for. But uh, I think the, the the challenge here is basically how can we how can we explain this to people that um, how can we explain the user of these systems. Uh, that uh, that this is what actually what what is occurring. Uh, a, a more recent example is the uh, OpenAI GPT-3 uh, models, which is a, a, a text generating uh, model um, where you can uh, basically feed it in uh, with a headline, and then it writes an article for you. Uh, which is uh, it's very difficult to distinguish uh, these uh, these uh, the text that is generated. Uh, with um, you know with with a with a real person actually writing it, but it turns out that uh, also the GPT three has a lot of uh, bias problems. Uh, so for an example being uh, religion uh, and gender uh, and race, um, uh, which uh, which actually stems from the fact that the uh, GPT three models they have been developed uh, you know using Wikipedia, using a web crawler that that basically crawls through the entire internet. Uh, and this is why, you know, inter-trained, uh, internet-trained models, uh, they also have internet scale biases. So how can you go in and, and, and fix this? And I, th I believe that, um, uh, that, that uh, in Denmark, uh, you know, I think there's a good uh, way to sort of, um, uh, to, uh, to have a discussion, an open discussion with stakeholders uh, around what is needed. So uh, one of the things that we are doing a lot is creating these explainable models that not only tells you that the price of your house is 79,000, but also why it is that price. Uh, so, uh, so connecting an, ex an explanation to the predictions that you're, you're making to these. But that's actually not the full truth because uh, one thing is that you can explain a model's behavior. Another thing is that you can actually uh, you know, track uh, all of the conscious or unconscious decisions that were done by the individual stakeholders throughout uh, the entire process of developing this. So all the way from uh, versioning and figuring out what was trained, training data that you actually use for this, uh, all of the uh, conscious and unconscious decision that every single person uh, did with this uh, model uh, going through the entire uh, life cycle uh, of, the, of, the, of the model development. And uh, I mean, obviously, yes, that, that, is, that, that, that kind of data or that kind of insight into a model uh, might might be you know a, a lot of a lot of understanding uh, for for an end user out there, uh, but um, on the other hand, I, I, it's also uh, very important uh, that this data is actually uh, available uh, in some form. This is why that I think it's it's very important that on top of the develop and and uh, and uh, developing these models that you also have uh, a governance. Uh, where you can actually go in and you can you can retrieve this data, you can see what has happened with certain models at certain times, and you can also interact with certain stakeholders uh, to, uh, to, uh, to to get their feedback and their input to whether these models were developed um, in a way that makes it socially and uh, and environmentally acceptable as well. Uh, so, uh, and but then the question becomes then. You know what? Uh, what is ethics actually? How? How? Uh, you know how are we uh, ethical? Uh, and and how are we develop developing this in a responsible way? However, the the general problem with all of these ethical frameworks is that um, it, it's very high level. Uh, it's very um, uh, it's very difficult for uh, the uh, technical people and for the for the for the uh, politics and the uh, the governance governments out, out there to sort of uh, take these ethical frameworks and then turning into into uh, into practice. Um, so so there's a lot of theory out there, but not enough uh, you know applied uh, work uh, when it comes to governance. 
the EU uh, uh, regulation and legislation on this is uh, focused around giving uh, some uh, recommendations to the member countries, which will uh, hopefully uh, and, and quite likely take effect start of next year um, in a number of European uh, countries, uh, which will be focused on uh, you know, uh, a risk-based approach uh, to all AI models being developed uh, in, in the member countries. Uh, another uh, thing that we've done in Denmark specifically uh, is that we've introduced uh, mandatory legislation for AI and data ethics. And that is, um, so, so what it concretely is, is that in uh, all of the, in around 1500 of the biggest companies in Denmark, uh, they are now required uh, from starting from start of next year, uh, to include a data ethics and AI ethics statement uh, in their year-end reports. Um, uh, and they, they need to have this and they need to be able to explain uh, why, uh, you know, how that uh, permeates into, uh, you know, the, the functions and the algorithms and the models that runs within that, that company. Uh, so, so that is a very concrete set of legislation that sort of, that, that states exactly that, that this is the responsibilities for, the, for these companies. And our, but but I, I still uh, think it's a it's only a start to uh, to to where uh, this kind of legislation will go. But the overall problem uh, is that it ha happens too slow because a lot of these models uh, and a lot of the problems that I've shown you now uh, is, is something that's been existing for many years. Uh, so so uh, so so definitely, I think we need more legislation and more regulation uh, and we need to do it faster but we also need to do it smartly so that it's not um, you know that that is not that we just stop all all progress uh, so so that's an important point in that as well so in in short uh, you know i think that the nordic model for uh, for how uh, ai is being developed and applied in terms of uh, data and in terms of models uh, it, it can work um, uh, and uh, and I think uh, the important point is that you, through the governance process, uh, that you make applications that is transparent, that is uh, fair and accountable, uh, that has this human oversight, um, that also support and enforce these uh, societal and envi environmental values uh, of the society. Uh, and finally, and that's uh, maybe the most important one, is that it is a collaborative work uh, so that you work with the stakeholders, the government and the community uh, for uh, continuous feedback. Um, uh, if you don't have that public debate uh, within a certain area or certain model, uh, then uh, you, 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 you always risk coming out into this, uh, you know, this trust relationship between uh, the users of, this mo of these models uh, and, uh, and the people developing them. This conversation is a part of a series from the MIT Denmark program at MISTI. The series focuses on digitalization in a Scandinavian context and the role Trust has played and continues to play in digitizing Denmark. To learn more about future events, visit MITDK.org. Thank you to Uma Girkar, Enrico Granado Chavez, Noreen Doss, Soren Jul Jorgensen, Rasmus Hausch, Professor Kathleen Thielen, and Madeline Smith for helping us put this program together. Misty Radio is a production of MIT International Science and Technology Initiatives. It is edited by Amina Katun. You can listen to us on WMBR Cambridge 88.1 FM or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close out with a song, O Valhalla, by Nordic band Skald. Thank you.